So uh, the gang truce as such, it kind of happened pretty much live on TV where I just took a bunch of Americans into Hard Living's territory and we started distributing food in Hard Living's territory. But we immediately grabbed some of the Hard Living's and said, hey, guys, come help us. And they're like, uh, okay. Cameras are there. Cameras are there. <laughs> and, and at the end of that day, I remember sitting with uh, the producer from the BBC and she was like, that's incredible. You know, that, that, like, do you do this all the time? And I'm like, man, you have no idea how close you came to dying today. <laughs> What's up, everyone? And welcome to the Wide Awake podcast. Today, I have an amazing guest. He goes by the name of Andy Steele-Smith. He is originally from Australia, but now lives in Cape Town. He is a social entrepreneur, former investment banker, but he is now known as the gang pastor. Welcome to the studio. Hey, good to be here, man. Yeah, How nice. are you? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really good, eh? Awesome. I want to ask you one question before we really get into it. Yeah. Why, when everyone from South Africa is trying to get to Australia, have you come from Australia to be in South Africa? Yeah, well, the answer is pretty, uh, pretty simple, man. The, uh, the flights coming this way are really, really cheap because the planes <laughs> are empty. <laughs> no, but seriously, um, actually, I, I'm an Aussie, but I was living in England at the time. And I really felt God call us to South Africa. This is, I don't know, 10 years ago, nine years ago. And so seven years ago, uh, we turned up here. And um, yeah, just kind of the, the rest is history as the saying goes. But yeah, we just felt we were meant to be here. So we came, had no idea what South Africa entailed. We had no idea what it was like. And we had no idea why we're coming here really, other than just we were meant to come. So we came. To the average man, that sounds insane. <laughs> so you really had no plan. You just decided to come here. Yeah, basically. I, well, I kind of had a plan, kind of, but only kind of. Like, you know, I'm a, I'm a as you say, I'm a, I'm a former investment banker. I sit on the board of a few companies and uh, I, I describe myself as a really good chairman. Um, I tell people what to do and I pontificate and that just hides the fact that I don't know very much about anything. <laughs> so well, actually, I kind of figured I'd sit on the board of a few charities when I came here, but I had no idea that I'd end up knee deep in, in sewers and and squatter camps and working with gangs and so on. If you had told me that, I would have probably shot myself rather than shot you, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, how did you end up doing the work you did? So I want to give a little bit of context before we get in. I met Andy, um, I think it was early 2020 or was it 2019? Uh, early 2020, week, but, week, uh, week two of lockdown, I think. So it was just as lockdown started and I was working with a, a film crew and we went to Manenberg, which is in the Cape Flats to cover a story. And the person we were covering was Andy. And um, the reason we were covering him was because he did something that I think most people considered to be a miracle. I mean, you, along with a lot of other guys that, that made this happen. But during lockdown, um, they managed to ca call a ceasefire within all the gangs and um, basically got people from opposite ends, from different gangs, rival gangs, to work together yeah. to deliver food to the community and by doing that kind of brought about peace for a little while within Manenberg. It's pretty hard to shoot somebody when you're carrying a box of food with them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you were saying to me the other day, it was, it's once you become friends, you know, it's, it's hard to fight each other. But That's right. Before we get into that, I want you to tell us a little bit about the work you did before that. I know that you, uh, I mean, how did you get into doing this kind of work? Yeah, it's a good question, and thanks for asking. And thanks for having me here, by the way. It's really cool to be with you. Eh? It's a pleasure. Uh, we've talked about this for a while. So, uh, um, yeah, look, uh, we arrived here, as I said, seven years ago, and uh, I really felt that we were meant to look and listen and learn for a year and not do anything. And and <laughs> that gave me a great excuse to surf most days for the first year we were here. That was pretty cool. 
Um, but uh, after after the first year, I started serving uh, in a little church community in in uh, for Santa Cruz, just outside of Durbanville, a small community of about fifty thousand people, and um, and I, I I think I'd been in that church for about three weeks, and uh, and somebody said, hey, would you start a, a young men's group? And I'm like, yep, yeah, fine, can't be that difficult. <laughs> and I said to them, I said, hey, I'm happy to do it, but who who did it beforehand? I'd like to meet them. And they said, no one's ever done it. There's no one else. Everyone's been too scared. And I'm thinking, man, I've, I've had the privilege of ministering to the gangs in South Central LA. Uh, for Santa Cruz, isn't that scary in comparison to South Central LA? This can't be that difficult. So I, I started a little group, a group of guys. We had eight young men uh, on the first Tuesday night, three, uh, three hours, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. And 9 p.m., we just put down a, a half drum braai and had some food. And the next week we had, I don't know, 20 guys. Next week, 50. Next week, 100. Next week, 150. You know, something like that. It just kind of grew. And uh, before we knew it, we had you know the, the majority of, of the young of the young men and quite a few of the young women in that community would be part of that group on a kind of a rotating basis. Some would come some weeks, some other weeks, etc. And f- sorry to interrupt, but for Please. those that don't know, I don't know if you mentioned it. For Santa Cruz, is a township. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, it's a township. So it's a township. About half of it is RDP housing, and about half of it is is Squatter Camp or Pluckers Camp. Um, and roughly, and it's a mixed, mixed, uh, mixed community, uh, colored and, and black. Uh, I don't think there's any, not to my knowledge, and I know pretty much every person there. Uh, I don't think there's any white people that live there. Um, uh, yeah. So it's, it's an interesting community because it's, um, they call it the forgotten city. Um, a lot of places that are very similar to it, um, but it's a really interesting community. It doesn't kind of have, it's not a farm community. It's not a city community. It's kind of halfway between the two. Um, and biracial, some houses are kind of okay. A lot of the squatter camp is just, you know, as bad as anywhere in the world or anywhere in South Africa, uh, et cetera. So it's a really, yeah, it really is a, um, economically and socially, et cetera. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty, a pretty sad place, beautiful place, but a pretty sad place at the same time. You were talking about the RG, is it RGP housing? Uh, RDP. RDP, is that government funded housing? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And yeah. I mean, I've always wondered how it works within those communities where the government comes in and starts building and then they build a certain amount of houses for people and then they just stop building them. I mean, how does that work within the community where some people have and some people don't now? Because it kind of causes that divide, like there is so much in, of in South Africa where there's such a wealth disparity, but now they're causing it within an impoverished community. No, absolutely. Look, the, the one of the, one of the greatest challenges in South Africa, and telling you know people that know it better than I do, is as you say the the divides. You know, divides between rich and poor, between black and white, between white and coloured, uh, between black and coloured, between you know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, you know, quite literally, any any cause for division is is something that. Um, uh, that, uh, you know, that, that is a bad thing, not a good thing. Um, so I think, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. It's, it's probably a longer one than we have time for in this particular conversation today, but you're absolutely right. Some of the, some of the good things that both the government and also even some of the, the, the church and parastatal, um, you know, uh, not-for-profit organizations do, um, actually doesn't necessarily help because it creates more divides and so on and so forth. Yeah. And I mean, once you started this young men's group, um, what happened after that? Where did that lead to? Yeah, good question. So, um, look, you know, I turned up as a relatively wealthy and privileged uh, Aussie. And, uh, you know, what do I know about townships? Absolutely nothing. And so, uh, thankfully, I was at a stage of life that I wasn't thinking I knew everything about everything. Uh, once upon a time, I might have thought that. Uh, but uh, because I didn't think I knew anything about anything to do with the township, I just started asking questions rather than coming with solutions or answers or saying, hey, you should do this or you should do that. 
And so I just say to the guys, I'd, I'd be really intentional about it. And each week I'd say, okay, guys, so what's happened in the community this week? And they'd say, well, there was a little boy. He died yesterday, a seven-month-old baby, and his mom can't afford a funeral. Um, we really want to help, um, but, you know, we need a bit of help. Can we do something? And I'm like, yeah, of course, you know, yeah, let's do that. You know, you, got, you guys want to do that, and you've got, you know, some resources to do that with, but not all. I've got some resources. Let's put those two things together. And then, you know, the next week they'd come and they'd say, listen, uh, go, go, uh, her, her house caught fire and, and, uh, she needs her, her shack rebuilt. Um, can we do that? And I'm thinking, well, I don't know how to build a shack. I don't know how to change a light bulb. I'll probably break it or, or burn the house down quite literally. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> and, um, but, you know, by the same token, uh, I've got some things and you guys have got some things, you know, I've got a truck, I've got hammers, I've got nails, I've got big lights, uh, and you guys know how to build shacks. So put those two things together and, you know, Bob's your uncle, so to speak. Actually, you got a more, shack. You're more like Tim, of course, he's your uncle, but hey, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and there you go. And so we did that, you know, with one shack here and one shack there and another one there and, 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 you know, just kind of helping in small ways. And I realized that one of the things that these young men in the community wanted and needed more than anything else was a dad, because so many of them, their dads have been, they're either dead or they're in jail or they've never met them. Um, or they're uh, on another farm 50 miles away, or they're in a mine, uh, you know, 500 miles away, et cetera, et cetera. And so the lack of fathers in that set of central male role model is such a big issue in, that, in, in, in all of these communities. And, uh, and so I thought, well, you know what, let's try and do the same kind of things that, that a good dad would do with their kids. You know, let's go build something. Let's go, I don't know, mow the lawn, but there's no lawn, so we'll find something else to do instead, you know, that kind of thing. And and because we were just in the community all the time and doing things with those boys pretty much every Saturday, we'd be there when things happened. So if there was a shack fire, um, there was a really good chance we'd be there. Or if there was a felt fire nearby, we'd see the smoke, there's a good chance we'd be there. And so we'd go to it. And, you know, we started looking for opportunities to, uh, to give these boys a chance to be a hero, you know, to do something heroic. <clears throat> Not so that we could look like heroes, but so that they could look like heroes and they could change their own view of themselves rather than looking at themselves as somebody who's got no hope to somebody who's actually filled with hope and, and he's a pretty cool guy. Like, you know, the people want to interview on the, I mean, th those are the boys you should have here and not me, you know, I mean, apart from the Elsa younger and, and uh, fitter and all that kind of thing than I am. <laughs> and they'll tell you the same thing, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. These, these, these kids, uh, they, um, they don't mind having, they don't mind having a lend of uncle Andy. Hey, uh, <laughs> I remember, I remember sitting with my twin boys, Franklin and junior, uh, who you've met uh, in the back of, uh, they were sitting behind me in, in the Land Rover a few years ago and they're like, Uncle Andy, your hair's getting thin. <laughs> I'm like, thanks guys. Anyway. Um, You're getting old. Yeah, that's it. Hey. Thanks for reminding me. I don't see it every time I wake up in the mirror. Yeah, that's it. Exactly <laughs> right. But anyway, but you look, you know what? Um, so we just started doing things in the community and because we're there all the time, you're there, as I say, when a felt fire happens or a shack fire happens or, or you see a, a, I don't know, a, a shack fall down or a, a baby gets hit by a car and needs to be raced to hospital or something like that. And then in, um, in June 2017, there was a massive storm, the Cape Storm, they called it. It raged for four days. And, uh, and uh, at the beginning of that storm, I thought, hey, a lot of my boys in this community and in, in the squatter's camp, uh, squatter camp particularly, they're going to get, you know, their houses are going to get really, really badly wet. And house is probably too strong a word, to be honest with you. You know what these shacks look like. They're generally speaking, they're, 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 you know, they're not, they're not good places to live. Um, and, uh, and so we, we went and we started helping to waterproof some of these shacks right at the beginning of the storm. And we did that right the way through the storm. Uh, and, um, and we kind of figured we'd, we'd probably end up helping to rebuild two or three shacks or something like that. Um, these kids are amazing. They're absolutely amazing kids. 
over a thousand shacks were damaged or destroyed in the squatter camp in that particular storm. And they worked 12 plus hours a day, six days a week for six, six and a half weeks to help rebuild over a thousand shacks or rebuild and, and repair over a thousand shacks. Uh, and so all of a sudden we had a couple of hundred kids that were doing incredible things in that community and doing it, you know, week in, week out. And rather than people looking at them and, and talking down to them like, ah, you're a nothing, you're a nobody, you'll become nothing, you become nobody. Um, you know, uh, elderly people in the community were starting to call these 8, 10, 15, 20-year-old kids pastor and, or umfundisi, et cetera. They, they had respect. And that was a pretty cool thing. And, and then that kind of led us really bizarrely and in, indirectly to the gangs insofar as that – uh, there was another massive shack fire, <clears throat> or there was a massive shack fire in Kailicha Town 2 at the end of 2018. And uh, my boys rang me and said, Uncle Andy, we've got to go. And I said, okay, cool, let's go. So I picked them up from school, uh, uh, took off in the truck to Kailicha Town 2. We stayed there for 28 days and helped rebuild 700 shacks that had been burnt. And this is all kids doing this work. You know, when I say kids, at this stage, they're probably 12 to 20 or 12 to 22, something like that. But they're, they're young guys, you know, and there's a few young ladies there as well. And uh, so all of a sudden we transitioned from these kids can, can, you know, serve their own community to these kids can build another community. And going back to that storm, you know, one of the things that really stuck me at the, struck me at the time was there's that great African proverb, you know, that it takes a village to raise a child. But in that moment and in that community, the children raised the village instead. And that was a pretty cool realization. And then, as I said, we go back to uh, 2018, we're in Kailicha. And all of a sudden, these kids from one impoverished community have gone and lived effectively in another impoverished community for a month that they didn't know at all. And they were actually terrified to be there because they'd heard how dangerous it was on this particular street in Kailicha Town too. It's kind of the most dangerous part of Kailicha. Lots of dangerous parts in Kailicha, but this is a really dangerous part normally. But, um, but they were there for 28 days. And to this day, if those boys come back into Kailicha, the community turns around and, and you know, just almost idolizes them. I, I have the adopted uh, Corsa name, Temen Corsi, which means trust in the Lord. And if I walk there in town too, they sing my name, but they're not singing Andy, Andy, Andy. They're singing trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord. So that's kind of cool. But, um, but yeah, so these kids, you know, all of a sudden uh, they're doing great things in other communities. And, um, and they're starting to see... Uh, opportunities for themselves that they'd never thought of or dreamt of before because their their frame of reference previously had been for Santa Kral and I'll probably never even be able to live in Durbanville, the nearest uh, non-township suburb, but all of a sudden they're transitioning all over um, the Cape and, and doing things in different places, going to the Eastern Cape and helping out, going to uh, Lesotho and helping out in different communities, things like that. And so they see things and they're, you know, they're open to opportunities that they didn't think that they had before. And then <clears throat> how we got to the gangs as such was uh, January 2019. And there was another shack fire in Imbiquini, a little, well, actually quite a big township between uh, Wellington and Powell. And, uh, and we went out there to help uh, rebuild those 47 shacks built, uh, burnt in that, particular, uh, in that particular fire. And when we arrived there, um, something absolutely transformative for me happened. There was a, a, a guy who had uh, tattoos, much like Turner Adams, whom, whom you've had on here before, tattoos head to toe, just all over every part of him. You know, the kind of, I'm sure that if you cut his nostrils open, there'd be tattoos on the inside kind of thing. And it turns out that this guy, Rodney, was a, a, a fighting general of the 26 gang, prison gang. And, uh, and, and I'm expecting a general to be sitting on the beach in Camps Bay, but the general is knee deep, forgive my language, but knee deep in shit, literally, in the middle of the squatter camp, helping to build this, this one-legged guy, Hunnis, as a uh, uh, shack and Hunnis is a one-legged guy, looks like a pirate, he's a ruster with a pirate hat and a, literally a, a uh, what do you call it, an eye patch, et cetera, et cetera. And he's, um, 
he's he's with a puck in his hand digging the corner post of his of his own uh, his own hockey or his own shack and Rodney's there helping him and so we're kind of like right we're going to help this guy first and we did but as I'm getting to meet Rodney and I'm getting to know Rodney I'm thinking hang on my theology and not just biblical theology but my theology of life if you like is you know we're all born evil and and we you know we we need to uh, we become good it would become good or something and but the, here's this guy who's who's the personification of evil you know he's he's got all of these tattoos over him not the tattoos are evil but the tattoos some of them tell the story of pretty barbaric things that have happened in his life and some of them that he's been the perpetrator of but he's knee deep in crap helping this guy. And I'm like, hey, there's something good here that I can pull on. It's like a string. And if he's not the only one, then maybe we can do something with that. And when, when it comes to that, um, I think a lot of people have a weird misconception about gangs and money. Yeah. You know, a lot of the guys that are the, the generals or the leaders of these gangs are basically a lot of the time they're pawns. Because the guys that really make the money, because how can you be a leader? And still be living like that. Correct. You know, a lot of the guys you work with, a lot of them are leaders and generals, but they're living um, pretty much as, hand to mouth. As if everyone else in the community is living, you know? Yep. But how do they live like that if they're coming through so much money? Yep. Because all of this money is getting funneled to people that you don't know about, people that you don't see. It's a hell of a multimedia, oh, sorry, uh, what do you call it? Multi level marketing system, <laughs> effectively. You know, there's, yeah. I mean, let me ask you a question. You, you've had a lot to do with the gang, some to do with through me and some yourself. Have you ever met a rich gangster? I've never met a rich gangster. Exactly, exactly. Now, there are some. I know rich gangsters in South Africa. I've yeah. never met them, right. but I know about them. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So I've met a few. They're not living in townships. I've met a few, but yeah, exactly right. They're not living in townships. You're exactly right. So, so that's that's uh, that's kind of an interesting thing. In Embiquini, another thing happened, which really kind of formed and 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 kickstarted us into the gangs. And as I said before, we worked out in in uh, in Fasanakral, and then in Kailicha, etc. That the number one issue was a lack of dads, a lack of father figures. Not to say that dads can't be good dads, but but if you're, <clears throat> you know, if you're having to work ten or twelve hours a day to make minimum wage 140 or 180 rand, you know, how can you be a good, how, how can you be around to be a good dad? You know, you, life is too tough. Eh? That's exactly what the problem is, <clears throat> is that it's not that there's no good dads, but it's the, the, the bad dads just aren't around. Yeah. And the good dads, especially in South Africa, because people earn so little, yeah. are out working all day. I mean, I there's construction sites down the road here. And sometimes I see eight thirty, nine o'clock at night. These guys are still building. Yeah, that's right. It's like, and they're making what two hundred rand a day. It's, if, it's bizarre. If you're lucky, it's crazy. If you're lucky, for but, the most part, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Continue. So, uh, so we had a, we had one, uh, yeah, another really crazy thing happened in Mkwini, which really took us literally to the doorstep of the gangs in Manenberg. And and what happened in that situation was um, this one particular day, Rodney, the the, the gang leader, wasn't with us. And uh, I had eight of my boys from Fasana Kral, including my twin boys, Franklin and Junior. Um, kudos to Franklin and Junior, by the way, heroes in my eyes. But hey. Uh, and um, Franklin and Junior, Junior are your adopted sons. Well, I call them my adopted sons. They actually have an amazing mum and dad, birth mum and dad, who they live with most of the time. They spend, you know, they spend a fair bit of time with my family as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I call them my adopted sons. But they're 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 you know godsons for want of a better term. But these these guys were two of the eight around the very first fire that we had in Fasanta Kral uh, six or seven years ago. And um, what were they? Fourteen, and now they're twenty-one. So there were these little you know uh, little skinny scrawny. I mean, like I honestly remember the first three months with Franklin and Junior. They'd just sit there with their hands behind their face, just going because they thought everything I said was very bizarre, which they were right about, it's by funny the way. funny Australian guy. <laughs> yeah. um, and, I mean, there was an incident that happened with them, right? 
how many incidents do you want? <laughs> <laughs> well, the main one. <laughs> which which one are you talking about? No, I'm actually genuinely serious. There's so many. Are you talking about where Franklin got beaten? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So um, uh, I'll come to that in one second. I'll just finish the story about Emma cool. real quick. So so we're in Emma and seven gangsters have ni- uh, not uh, uh, knives and pungas, not guns, but knives and pungas drawn. And they come to rob us and probably kill us. I mean, they're, you know, they're certainly not going to sit there and give us a haircut. My dad probably would have liked it if they had given me a haircut. Hey. But uh, <laughs> um, I'm serious. For 30 years, I've been traveling back to Sydney, and my dad says, the first thing he ever says to me is, when are you gonna cut son, head? when are you getting a haircut? <laughs> He's 92. I'm like, give me a break. <laughs> Anyways, uh, but um, yeah, so we're there, and these guys come to come to attack us. And so I did what any self-respecting pastor would do, and I, I reached over. Uh, to put my hand behind the head of the lead gangster and take his head off with my fist. <laughs> um, and at that point in time, I, I really felt God whisper in my ear and say, hey, you should hug him and kiss him instead. And and so I did exactly that. And uh, and this kid literally dropped his punga and said, um, can I have a, a, a hammer to bill with you? And he started crying floods of tears, like floods, floods, floods of tears. And at that point in time, the penny dropped for me. I was like, hey, these kids have the same issue as my kids in Fasana Kral. They just need a father. They just need somebody to affirm them and say, you're all right, son. You can achieve something. You can do something. You know, um, just the same role that, you know, I've met your dad. He's a good dad. He's, he's, he's affirmed you for years. Even when you were going through tough, tough things in, in, in life, your dad still sat there and said, good on you, son. He might not have wanted to at times, I'm sure, but he, but he did, at least for the most part, right? I mean, if, if he wasn't <clears> there for me and my mother wasn't there for me, I don't know where I'd be. Correct. And so for most of these kids, they don't have that. And, and, and that's systemically been stripped from them. The dads were taken to the mines or to the farms or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, so at that point in time, the penny, the penny dropped for me or the light bulb, you know, light bulb moment as the, as the saying goes, I went, Hey, these, these kids who are gangsters, they're just the same as the kids in Fasana Crowd. They just happen to wear the, the, the badge of being a gangster. I'm like, Hmm, I think we need to go to Manenberg. And so at that point in time, we uh, six weeks later, we turned up in Manenberg on a Friday night and we just did exactly what we'd done in Fasanakral. You know, I'm not a particularly inventive guy. If something has happened before and it's worked, I'll try it again, you know. Um, and uh, so we turned up and we found uh, kind of the main or one of the main hard living gang houses. We knew the hard livings were the biggest gang. And uh, we just threw a half drum, drum bride down on the street corner. I remember the week beforehand, I was speaking at a, at a, a little church in Manenberg. And, uh, and at the end of the service, I said to the people that I was speaking to, I said, guys, um, do you want to do something fun next weekend? I said, we're going to go start a, a braai with the gangs here in Manenberg. One of two things is going to happen. We're either going to transform Manenberg or we're going to die really famous. Who's going to put your hands up? And this amazing 72-year-old guy was the first guy with his hand in the air. And then this 32-year-old single like, mom. like, i got nothing left to lose. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. All right. And uh, so away we went. And um and we just started, uh, we started doing what we'd done in Fasanakra, but we started doing it in Manenberg, right outside a, a pretty hard, you know, gang house. And, and uh, you know, all these gang leaders coming out, some with guns and others, you know, we get lots of guns around. And, um, and you know, they're kind of basically saying, hey, you know, what the F are you doing here? And we're like, oh, are you stupid? I'm having dinner. What do you think? You know, like, do you not, not know what a bray is? Surely you're a South African, right? Like, you know, a bit of humor doesn't go astray, even if it gets you killed almost, eh? But... Um, <laughs> These guys are like, do we kill you or eat you? And I'm like, do whatever you want, but do it after dinner with this nice food here. Do you want some? And they're like, yes, please. By the end of dinner, they're like, hey, you're my friend. I'm not going to kill you or eat you. I'm like, cool, that's great. I'm kind of pleased about that. <laughs> I'm sure they were a bit confused uh, they were really confused. you there. <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were really confused. And I think, you know, uh, there was a really interesting thing that actually happened the following week because, um, you know, we just turned up one Friday night. 
And uh, I was, I was, I, in fact, it was cool timing. I had a friend of mine from Los Angeles, a guy called Emilio Cervantes, who used to be a Bloods gang member himself 30 odd years before that in, in, uh, in South Central LA in Compton. And, um, and he was with me. So he actually preached that night. I didn't preach the first night we turned up uh, around this fire. I was just talking to the gangsters and the, the gang leaders and so on. And, um, and that, that kind of worked well. But the following week we turned up and, and I drove into Manenberg and we had hundreds of kids running after my truck saying, Uncle Andy, Uncle Andy. Now, the, that, that may not shock you, but that shocked me because in, in for Santa Corral, I had to be there for probably six months almost every day before everybody knew Uncle Andy, right? They were like, who the hell is this Umlungu? Who, who, who the hell is this crazy guy? For six months, people had no idea who I was. But it took a while. It took quite a long time. But in Manenberg, I turned up just a second time. And they remembered because people don't go there a second time because they think it's so scary. And it's actually not that scary. Um, and so I actually had this incredibly privileged position of, of just being one of the relatively few wealthy white guys. And many others have done the same or other things as well and done amazing things in that community. So I'm not the first person by a long shot. But, but when not many people that look like me or that might sound like me, probably none that sound like me because I'm an Aussie, <laughs> go, and, go and, and, and do that and then just turn up a second time and then guess what? Turn up a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time and a sixth time. I would like to call what you do a, a sustained assault because you just keep showing up and they just can't get rid of you. Pretty much, like you a bad smell. You just keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly right. So, so yeah, so what we do is really simple, hey, but it, but it, it just seems to work because, as you say, we just keep turning up and, and um, we've talked about this before, but... But I think, you know, in, in these kinds of communities, um, I think we've had, we've, we've got a number of, um, uh, a number of advantages that, 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 uh, that we use to our advantage, if you like. And that is, uh, we just play with whatever's in our hands. So today it's a shack fire. That's what we do. You know, we're the shack fire guys. Tomorrow it's a flood. We're the flood guys. Next week it's a baby's funeral. Guess what? We're the baby's funeral guys. You know, whatever it is that we, that's needed. We'll try and do it. We can't do everything for everybody all the time. Try and solve things as they come. Well, try to try to to be there for the people as they come more to the point. So rather than solve, because that's a really important thing. If we just get in there and solve it, we're just colonializing. Um, but but you but know, you want to uplift and empower people. Correct. Exactly right. And you know, the the great things about these communities is nine nine times out of a hundred, they've got the answer. They know what to do. You know, the, the, the reason that this started working in Fasana Kral is that I didn't come with any ideas or suggestions or thoughts. I just said to the boys, I said, hey, lads, uh, just by the way, a point, a point of, a point of um, reference there. When I say boys, I'm talking as a father, not, not in any sort of racial connotation, just to be clear. But I'd say to the boys, I'd say, hey, what's going on this week? And they'd tell me. And then they'd, I'd say, well, what's the solution? They'd say, well, we need to do X. And I'd say, great, let's go do it. You know, so I think... Um, uh, they can do it. They just don't have the the resources necessarily to do it? Uh, resources is a thing, but, but really it's permission. They feel like they need permission because they've lived for generations in oppression and where, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, mania to everybody and it's, it's, it's this, this sort of oppressed, I've got I've to, you know, I, I can only do what I'm permitted to do as opposed to just go do what I want to do, you know. Um, and, uh, and so somebody who's a little bit of a, a cowboy or a rule breaker a little bit of a crazy Aussie comes in and says, stuff the rules. <laughs> yeah, let's go do it, you know. Oi, oi, oi. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. 100%. They, uh, they love it, you know. So, um, and I mean, talking about oppression, I think before we get into anything else to do with Manenberg, yeah. I would really like to ask you because, I mean, 
we probably aren't the right guys to be speaking about this. Um, but I know you've done so much time listening and, and learning from the people in the community that I'd really love to know what the history is of the Cape Flats in connection with apartheid. Cool. Um, well, I'm not going to give you a, a, a historical history lesson. I'm going to give you a, um, a theoretical history lesson, if that makes sense. And it won't be much of a lesson, but hey, um, I, think, I think the two things that were constructively, um, and maybe three things, but the two or three things that were constructively robbed of the, of the people of the Cape Flats from District 6 and so on, um, uh, when when they were um, moved under the the um, the what is it called the group areas act? Thank you, that one. Yeah, um, uh, I need you with me more often when I can't remember things. Hey, that's <laughs> great. I'll take you with me. But under the group areas act, they were removed from where they used to be and and put into a, into a bit of a hellhole, to be honest with you, or a series of hellholes. And the things that were taken from them were their freedom, and their dignity, and their hope. And if you take freedom from somebody and let alone dignity and hope, they're even more important than freedom. You can have somebody who's locked up, but they've still got dignity and hope and therefore they've got the potential of a future. Um, but if you, if you don't have dig dignity and hope, there's nothing tomorrow that, you know, and so you can oppress people really easily by removing dignity and hope. And one of the best ways to, and I say one of the best ways, one of the most terrible ways to remove dignity and hope is to put um, 100,000 people in a space that probably should be fit for 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 people, overcrowd people to the absolute maximum, remove as much hope as you can, give them as few jobs, as poorly paid as possible, um, re remove the dignity of service delivery. I mean, service delivery, what is that, you know, um, uh, uh, in, in, in most of these communities? And it's a funny thing. Privileged people will often, well, they won't often go into these communities, but if they do, they'll say, hey, why don't these people clear up their own rubbish? You know, there's a, a huge pile of rubbish That's there. That's something I hear all the time. Right. And, and the reality is who clears up our rubbish? It's the people from these communities because they get paid minimum wage to pick up our rubbish for us, which is just, it's, it's, it's not right in the first place, but there's nobody that's paid to do that in that community. So it's, you know, we, we judge them, but, but actually we should think they're heroes for, for coming and helping us and doing the things that they do for us, et cetera, you know? So, um, anyway, that's, that's it in a nutshell. You put people, uh, a huge number of people in a small space, remove dignity, remove hope, um, and, and make life as tough for them as possible. And guess what? They will fight each other because they'll be too scared to fight the white oppressor or the, the, the privileged oppressor. And so they'll fight like hell with each other. And that's exactly why gangsterism exists. I, I, I tell people all the time that gangsterism is something that, that to be blunt, the white man created. And uh, they look at me like, explain that. And then I explain what I've just said and they go, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> but to start with, they're like, hey, that doesn't make any sense. But, you know, I mean, the, the, the whole concept of gangsterism, um, I, I have a number of uh, theories, if you like, or a number of thoughts. Um, and I'll share one of them with you now, which is, which is a little controversial. But I, I tell people from time to time, um, a place like Manenberg um, would be actually in some ways a lot worse off without the gangs. And I say in some ways, not in every way, but in some ways, because the gangs bring a sense of order. The gangs bring a sense of discipline. The gangs bring a sense of respect. Well, it's, it's the same thing with, say, Paulsmore Prison, with the numbers gang. Every gangster I've talked to said they like the fact that there's the numbers gang there, or they don't like it, but it's necessary because yeah. there is some form of order. Everyone has to fall within those, those uh, within the rank. Correct. No, exactly, exactly, uh, exactly right. And there's, there's, there really is a sense of respect with the gangs. There really is, you know, it's, it's a funny thing. And um, 
and and it's yeah, it really is a funny thing. It's it's quite confusing and it's hard to get your head around. But once you spend a, t- a lot of time with them, you uh you you get to realize that that the system um is there's lots of bad things about the system and the fact that the system exists in the first place is because of another system, i.e. apartheid, that existed a- as a precursor to that. Um, but uh, uh, but there are some good elements to it. There are some you know some perhaps let's call it unintended good consequences of. Uh, of of that system and of that structure, and I think so. I think one of those things is when I'm in Manenberg and I'll see, uh, I'll see. I'm going to be really simplistic about this, but three types of young men, um, and the types, if you like, are gangsters, um, non-gangsters who don't work, and non-gangsters who do work. So the non-gangsters who do work. Um, generally speaking, they've got a, a work ethic, they've got a bit of structure, they've got a, a, a routine, you know, uh, et cetera. They've got dignity and hope, at least to some extent. Um, the, the, the gangsters, <clears throat> some of whom who actually have normal jobs as well, sometimes, not usually, but sometimes, they've got the structure and so on of the gang. The, the, the group of people who actually are the ones who have probably the, less, the, the, the least hope and the least dignity are the non-employed uh, non-gang members. And when I say non-employed, I'm not talking somebody who's just out of a job for three weeks or, or three years, but somebody who probably has never had a job and never thinks that they'll ever be able to get a job. And it's not because they don't want a job. It's just they don't, they, they finish school at grade three. They don't know how to spell. They don't know how to write their name. They don't, you know, their chances of, they, they, they couldn't afford the 135 rand to get a copy of their, uh, of their, what do you call it? Um, uh, well, ID book. <laughs> I don't. I don't have one. But anyway, um, you know that kind of thing. So, I mean, it's it, the system is really rigged against the the impoverished person. You know, it's, it's it's just in 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 crazy ways. But anyway, something that a very wise man that we're going to talk about a little bit later told me. Um, he he lives in in Manenberg, or he used to live in Manenberg, and um, he said to me that what they do is. With, in terms of the Cape Flats is they've put everyone there. It's overcrowded. They strip, like you say, everything away and um, they leave everyone there to kill each other. And uh, I mean, the one, one thing that he told me was that cops don't come in when there's gang fights. They come after to collect the bodies. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Um, yeah, it's a, it's and and that that comes down to stripping away the dignity and hope. You know, if you if you Im, if you imprison and impoverish people long enough and generationally, they just won't even start to look above the parapet and think what might, what might you know possibly uh, what might possibly be. And the 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 disparities are, are still so strong in this country. Um, um, more so in some areas and some cities and some parts of the different cities than others. Um, uh, personally, I think Cape Town is probably the most. Uh, divided part of, of South Africa. Um, it's, you know, the, the, the rich the are very rich. The disparity is massive. Yeah, the rich are very rich, the poor are very poor. And the thing is, it's systemic and people don't realize it. You know, just today I was at a funeral uh, for somebody that I know from a farm. And um, and this particular uh, person, amazing person, I won't name them, but just an incredible person, one of the most beautiful people I've ever met in terms of their spirit and uh, just, just a delightful person. 60 odd years of age, died of cancer, but um, uh, they'd worked on this farm for, I don't know how long, I'm guessing 30 plus years. And um, not one person, not one person uh, from the management on the farm or the ownership of the farm uh, turned up at the funeral. 
Now, if, you know, I mean, that, but, but they wouldn't even think that they should. They wouldn't think that they're welcome. They wouldn't, and I'm not judging them. I'm just saying the system is so, it's so disparate that it's, it's about us and them as opposed to us, if that makes sense, you know? And I think that's one of the first things we have to break, as, as you rightly said at the beginning of this discussion. Division is a really, really dangerous thing, but unity, man, that's a, that's a powerful thing. And, and, and I think one of the things that we've managed to, to luck our way into, because I didn't do it with some, you know, with, I mean, I describe myself as one of the most educated people in the world because I failed at four of the best universities in the world. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more educated than some, but a lot less than many. Um, and, uh, but we kind of lucked into this and, and what we lucked into was just working out how to get people to work together. And, um, and from that, great things have happened. And, we, you know, we're, we're, we've just been blessed to see great things happen uh, time and time again. Um, but it's because, you know, we've just helped to activate something that was already there in the community, but they just needed, as I said before, permission, permission to succeed, permission to do something good, um, permission to see themselves in a, in, a, in a positive and a different light. And I guess that's kind of what was behind all of the things that, um, that happened in the beginning of lockdown and, the, you know, brought us together, to, brought you and I to, to, to meet each other in that circumstance. You know, um, I know a photographer and he does drone work right. all over the world. And uh, he's originally from South Africa, <clears throat> I, I think. Um, but he, does, he has this project called Unequal Scenes. And it was actually on the front cover of Times magazine. Um, it was a photo of uh, a township in, in Joburg. And the township runs directly along one of the wealthier suburbs. And it's a drone shot from the top. And it's just this direct split in between. It's like a perfect line mm. straight through the middle. Extreme wealth on this side and extreme poverty on the other side. And I think that the title was South Africa, the most unequal country in the world. Yeah. But anyway. It still is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's in my opinion, I think it's getting worse. But yeah. Um, I want to talk about the work you did during lockdown. And I know I gave a little bit of a brief um, explanation or, or coverage of what, what you did, but I'll, I'll do it again. So during lockdown, Andy basically managed to organize a ceasefire between how many gangs? Uh, six gangs. Between six gangs in the Cape Flats. And um, instead of just doing a ceasefire, he got all the guys together this is not saying everyone in every gang. It was some of the, the leaders of each gang, right? Yeah, that's right. And it's just some of the members as well together to help um, distribute food to the communities. And I mean, this was something that was covered all over the world. I mean, I saw about it before I met you. I didn't know you when I heard about this. Yeah. Um, I remember... I, I saw you online and I wanted to get a hold of you and I, I just didn't know how to, you know, I probably could have just messaged you on Instagram, but I was like, I really, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I was like, I really want to go and document what this guy is doing. Right. Because I had always wanted to, to go and document in the Cape Flats. Um, but you know, I, I'm a young guy and, um, every time I went, it just didn't feel safe. So I was never able to do it. And then I got a call from this Italian guy and um, he wanted me to do some drone work of a job. And I was like, cool, what's the job? And he was like, well, there's this crazy pasta out in Manenberg <laughs> um, that's somehow got himself in the middle of all these gangs and he's made a, a truce, you know? So I don't know how that happened, but it just, everything kind of fell into place. And, and I came and I met you 
And I mean, yeah, just just let us know. I know I've kind of said it already, but tell us more about what you guys were doing there. And I, I know you were telling me just now downstairs about the first gang truce that you were a part of as well. Gotcha. Um, well, I'll tell you the truth as to how that all happened. Um, and that is just like you, I have no idea how the heck it happened. <laughs> um, I think I think one of the things that I was born with was an innate belief that uh, if you believe the impossible is possible, you might just actually find yourself to be right, you know? Um, and, uh, and, and I think, um, so when it came to, to the beginning of lockdown, um, uh, probably two weeks or three weeks before lockdown was announced, um, and just as coronavirus had hit the shores of South Africa, um, I realized that a storm was coming, so to speak, and, uh, and that it was going to be really, really bad. I also realized that our finite resources, that we probably couldn't actually stop the storm or, or, or really stem the storm. But I also realized that that wasn't an excuse not to just turn up. And as you and I have talked, you know, just turning up is probably the theme of, of what I do, just turn up <laughs> and turn up with absolutely nothing, but, but still go, you know. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, so the first thing we started doing before we started with food was actually just soap. Um, we wanted to, to go and distribute masks and gloves and, and sanitizer, but there was none available. We kind of tried to buy it everywhere and, uh, we couldn't, we couldn't get anywhere, a, any a, a medical supplies anywhere in the country. And, um, and, uh, so I thought, well, what's the next best thing? Okay. soap. <laughs> and so we went and bought about a hundred thousand Rand worth of sunlight soap, um, got a great deal and, and just, you know, took a, a, a couple of trucks full of, of soap. Uh, into Manenberg and other places too, but Manenberg was kind of the, the center of it. And we started distributing it um, through the Americans gang, which uh, that I was pretty close with, Leroy Preston, Failures, all the guys that you've met m many times now. And um, But it was mainly in Americans territory. And we thought, okay, this is cool. This is working well. And then we had a bunch of vo volunteers from uh, Hillsong Church came and, and a bunch of people from different parts of Cape Town just said, hey, come on, we'll pitch up for a few hours and help. And so they'd Put, uh, they didn't have masks on at the time because it was before we'd really started to think about masks. And, um, and, uh, and so we started distributing the soap. And then about uh, maybe a week before lockdown, I realized that, that you know, there was just um, – there was we had too much soap and not enough troops to be able to distribute it. And so I just thought – I thought I just imagine you rocking up with like – 20,000 bars of soap and being like, okay, now what do I do? <laughs> I think it was a hundred thousand, but whatever the number oh. was, it was, yeah, like it was, it was, it was kind of crazy. And so I thought I, I need to engage more people. And so on one particular night, it was a Tuesday night, I think late afternoon, about 5 PM. Um, I drove into Manenberg and, um, pulled up and, uh, there was, uh, I was on Storms River Road and, um, Leroy and, and Preston, the kind of number one and number two of, of that part of the Americans were there. And I went up to Lee um, and Lee is one of the first gangsters that I, I met in Manenberg. Um, uh, yeah, a crazy story about that, but that's a, a story for another day. But anyway, um, <clears throat> um, uh, I went up to Leroy and I said, hey, brother, I said, um, I, we've been doing this soap distribution every day and night for the last week, week and a half. I need to up the pace of this. And um, I want you to do me a favor. And he said, what's that? I said, I want you to take me to that, introduce me to the leaders, your contemporaries of all of the other gangs. And looked at me, and, and I've got a photo of his face at that moment. I'll share it with you later. It's, it's just got this this perplexed frown on his face, like this is going to be the day that I'm going to die, not on my watch kind of thing. And he said, I love you, Andy. I'll do anything for you. I would die for you, but I really don't want to do it today. So the answer is a hard no. And I thought, okay, 
damn, that hasn't worked. I'm going to try a different tact. And before I could do anything, um, Preston, his 2IC, uh, turned around and said... 2IC means what? Second in charge, sorry. Yeah, yeah, his second in charge said, um, come on, Andy, I'll take you. And the context of this is about maybe a month before that I'd, I'd been mugged. It's the only time I've ever had any sort of thing happen to me as such. Uh, in, uh, in, in, in South Africa, I say mugged, I had a phone stolen from my pocket, you know, but like ripped out of my pocket and guy ran off and so on. And, um, and as soon as Leroy heard about this happening, he walked across three different gangs, enemy territories on like midnight on a Saturday night to find me and to take me back to his place and say, right, we're going to get in your bucky. We're going to go and meet the two gang leaders of the two gangs territory that this happened in. And they're going to find who this guy was so they can get your phone back. And I'm thinking there's no chance on God's green earth that I'm going to get my iPhone back. It's just not going to happen. Well, um, an hour later I had my phone and, and I realized at that point in time that the gangs, they could do just about anything in, in that space. They could really, you know, they could make people talk and so on and so forth. And I don't mean that in a terrible way, but just, you know, they, they, and they can cooperate if they need to hundred percent. And so at that point I thought, well, hang on, if they did this for, for the pastor who had his phone stolen, um, surely they could do this to, to help the community. And I thought that Lee would say, yeah, let's do it. But he just thought, hey, this is just crazy. There's gang wars happening at the moment. This is just a dumbass idea, basically. But Preston said, all right, let's go. And I'm kind of going, okay, cool. So Preston jumps on the back of my big bucky, lights, sirens, all this kind of stuff, you know. So it's really like in your face, you know it. And he's got an American uh, a bandana uh, on, so like as a face mask. So it's kind of like going, shoot me, I'm an American, you know? <laughs> it's kind of like having a billboard with a... I know, a, I took a photo of them with the masks on. Yeah, you did, you did. Great photos too, by the way. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, so uh, so there we, we we drove, just he and I with the, 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 the back of the truck filled with soap. Uh, and we drove it first into the hard livings and, and uh, one of the hard livings, not absolute leaders, but a senior guy looked at me like, yeah, I know who you are, but I think you're crazy. Uh, but hey, you want to give us soap? Okay, that's fine. And that was kind of cool. And then we went to the to the to the jesters, and there was guns everywhere, and it was it was looking really ugly for a minute or two there. And I just said, hey, who's who's the who's the lead guy here? And they said uh, Faiz, and I said, hey, Faiz, can you take me to him? And they took me to him, and they they and so I went to him, went to his house. I said, listen, I've got something for you. And he's like, okay. Came to the truck and. There's, you know, 10,000 bars or however much it was of, of soap. And I said, listen, can you start distributing this in your area? And he went, okay. <laughs> and then, and I think that one of the, one of the critical things that happened at that point in time was he was looking at me, expecting me to say, well, do you want proof that this has happened, et cetera? And I, I picked up on that and I said, Hey, listen, by the way, I don't need you to do anything and, and show anything to me. I trust you. You're a good man. I respect you. You're a good man. Just go go do good things for this community and be seen to be the good man by doing a good thing for the community. So off he trotted, you know, standing a little bit taller, and uh, and started, you know, going and distributing uh, the soap. And then we went to the to the you know to the um, uh, Dixie Boys and Clever Kids and and so on and so forth. We went to to most of the major gangs and and did that. And then uh, a week after that, the day that lockdown started, the Thursday morning, about eight o'clock in the morning. Um, I had two gang leaders, two generals call me from two different gangs and they said, Hey Andy, um, uh, uh, this community is already hungry. And I'm thinking, but like lockdown hasn't even started yet. And he's like, yeah, but everybody lives here day to day, mouth to mouth kind of thing. There's nobody that has, uh, an abundance, uh, you know, an excess or almost nobody in this community. And I went, okay, that's a fair point. And he said, my family, they, they said, our families, the gang leaders' families are already hungry. Don't worry about feeding us, but please, can you do something for the community? And I thought, yo, what am I going to do? And I really didn't know what to do, but I thought, hey, you know what? I'll just go and buy as much food as I can. And so I went and 
hired a, a five ton trailer and, and, uh, and went and bought, I think 10 tons worth of food <clears throat> and, um, and then started distributing it. And, uh, and then the next day we did the same thing. And the next day we did the same thing. And the next day we did the same thing. And, and then the BBC heard about what we were doing. Um, and they came and started filming it. And at that point in time, there wasn't actually a gang truce. There was no, it was, it was, um, there was a lot of uneasiness in the community because people were starving or certainly super, super hungry. Um, and that people were looking perplexed that we were doing things with the gangs, different gangs, that I would go from one gang area to another. They were perplexed about that. And that I would take some of my boys from Fasanacraft, Franklin and Junior and so on and so forth with me, and my own son, Barney. And uh, they were perplexed by that, but there still wasn't a gang truce. Um, and then the BBC came and filmed and, and, uh, um, and that's where, you know, that, 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 um, uh, I think you were referring to it the other day saying, Hey, remember that time that you said, Hey, you know, these guys are really good at distributing white powder. They're the best distributors yeah, so in the country. <laughs> I saw an interview of Andy and this was on, what, what was it on? BBC. Was it on the BBC? Mm. And, um, th they asked you a question of Cameron and Andy answers. He says, he says, well, I, I, I thought the gangs would be great to distribute the food and uh, because they, they have good distribution networks and um, they use that for other white powders. So why not use it for white powder, a.k.a. flour to feed <laughs> the community? Yeah, it, you it. didn't say it exactly. You said it much funnier than that. But <laughs> it was uh, yeah, one of those moments that, that um, I wish I could recreate, but it just happened and it was kind of cool. But, it was great. But um, and that was that, when I said that, that was probably four hours before we were actually in Manenberg. They were filming while we were loading up the, 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 the truck at my house and so on. Um, and like for the first few weeks of lockdown, my, my family, um, young kids and, and so on. And my wife, are, uh, uh, you know, furiously packing food parcels, hundreds of food parcels a day kind of thing. My kids are like slave labor, you know, I probably have, I don't know, the, um, uh, uh, human rights commission come and, <laughs> and investigate me for, uh, for abuses on my kids. But anyways, uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this and, and then the BBC come and we go into Manenberg and uh, at one point I turn to Preston and I say, hey, Press, um, we did something crazy the other week, didn't we? You know, when we went to the other gangs and to the leaders and, and distributed soap through them. And he said, yes, Sandy. And I said, you want to try something crazy? And he looked at me like, oh, geez. It's the right time to do it. You've got the BBC there. <laughs> 100%. So I said to him, I said, hey, I think, I think this might either um, go really, really well or really, really bad. But guess what? If it goes really badly, gonna die we're going to die very famous. <laughs> and so, um, so uh, the gang truce as such, it kind of happened pretty much live on TV where I just took a bunch of Americans into hard living territory and we started distributing food in hard living territory. But we immediately grabbed some of the hard livings and said, hey, guys, come help us. And they're like, uh, okay. Cameras are there. Cameras are there. <laughs> <laughs> and so they just started doing it. And then we did the same thing with hard livings and Americans in Clever Kids territory. And they were like, okay. And then we did the same thing with hard livings Americans and Clever Kids in Justice territory, et cetera, et cetera. And it just kind of went. And, and at the end of that day, I remember sitting with uh, the producer from the BBC and she was like, that's incredible. You know, that, that, like, do you do this all the time? And I'm like, man, you have no idea how close you came to dying today. <laughs> So, um, so it just kind of worked, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't planned. It wasn't, um, but I, I, but you know, like I'd, I'd gotten the gangs to work together, Americans and, and hard livings just one time, uh, before that there was a shack fire, three shacks, only a small fire, but still a devastating fire 
about three or four months before lockdown, about three months before lockdown actually, and and um, I'd, I'd got the community to or the boys from the gangs to work together to help rebuild those three shacks. And I thought, man, if that worked on that one occasion, just maybe we can do it again and it might work for a day or two or three. But I didn't in my wildest dream think that it would work for three, four, five, six months. And and um, and then, you know, very shortly after that, um, because the, 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 the news of the world kind of came knocking on the door and, you know, after the BBC there was a CBS and then Trevor Noah and, and so on and so forth and then print press and all that kind of thing. Um, South African sweetheart Trevor Noah. <laughs> hey, I like him. <laughs> um, but uh, I think he's fantastic. But, hey, uh, uh, it, was, it was just kind of, it was kind of crazy. And then, and then a friend of mine, an amazing lady called Shamila January, who's lived in Manenberg pretty much her whole life, I think, um, and she'd been kind of my, my right-hand person in terms of, uh, the things that we did in Manenberg. Before I do something else crazy, I'd go to her house and say, Hey, is this okay? And she's like, go for it, Andy. It'll, a, it'll work and B, it'll be appreciated. Go for it. You know, so she was kind of my permission as such. My, you know, I'm conscious of not going into places and just saying, Hey, I think this is a good idea. Therefore it'll work. And just, you know, ask permission rather than just barging my way in. Anyway, she said to me, I need to introduce you to uncle Errol. And I thought, I've heard of Uncle Errol. I want to meet Uncle Errol. And so she introduced me to Uncle Errol. And Uncle Errol standing there, 67 years of age, tutting me, going like, Chaw. So before Chaw. you continue about <laughs> Uncle Errol, should yeah. I maybe give some context yeah, about him? Yeah, please do. So Uncle Errol was a very well-respected <clears throat> person within the Cape Flats, uh, especially Manenberg. Mm. And um, he had been trying for, I think, 20, 30 years to get the gangs to stop fighting. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. But more than 20 years, yeah. And um, he was just, yeah, he was an absolutely incredible guy. I mean, I remember showing up to, to Manenberg because I met him on the first day when we worked there. It was funny enough, who, I don't remember who I was filming with. I don't know from, from what agency. Uh, I think that was the Italian guy. Yeah, I don't, the, I don't remember. The Italian Swiss. But, um, the Swiss equivalent of the BBC, whatever that's called. I remember... They were looking for guys to interview. And, you know, a lot of people are shy on camera. Some people, it's not their first language, English, or whatever they were speaking. But I remember talking to Errol, and I was like, this guy is the person we need to be talking to. Yeah. Because he knows everything. You know, he's so deeply rooted within within this issue yeah. um, and within the community. And I went up to him, and we said, would you do an interview? And he says, he doesn't do any interviews for free. <laughs> You know, he doesn't give his knowledge away for free, which is which is quite right because Correct. why should he? Um, but anyway, I mean, I I remember going to to Manu, it was I, I went to see him so often. Um, yeah, and every time I would go and see him, there would just be blaring slow jazz music playing. Yeah, off of his TV, and literally every single time, no matter what day it was, you'd be in his gown listening to slow jazz music. <laughs> yeah. And I remember just trying to have conversations with him, you know, and he was just chilling, having a good time. And there's just this blaring music in the background. And I'm like, please turn it down. I'm trying to have a conversation with you. You never turned it down for no one. Eh? Look, you know what? He, uh, yeah, he's an incredible man. I, I miss him. I miss him dearly. As you know, we celebrated um, and, and commiserated the, the one year anniversary of his death to COVID just uh, about two weeks ago, not, not quite two weeks ago, two weeks ago tomorrow. And, um, but, you know, I, I mean, and in fact, Uncle Errol, Ty Errol, was really the reason why that uh, that 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 peace held. Because okay, I'd, I'd been blessed to get peace, and it was a bit of a dumb miracle. You know, I'd kind of walked into it. People were like, "Wow, you did something amazing." I'm like, "I have no idea what I just did. <laughs> it just kind of happened." 
Um, and then I met him after that, after the BBC were there. And, uh, and, and we sat down and we just, we just gelled, you know, sometimes you just look at somebody and you go, Hey, this is my guy and, and, and I'm his guy kind of thing. And, um, you know, the, one of my greatest privileges in life was, was, um, with having the privilege of burying him, uh, sad privilege. I'd much rather not have that privilege, of course, but having the privilege of burying him and knowing that his last words to me were, um, my pastor, God bless. You know, he called me his pastor. And uh, that to me is, a, is, is, is something that I literally carry to my grave. But anyway, but uh, Uncle Errol uh, basically said, listen, you've got, this, you've got this crazy gang piece. I think you're the dumbest, craziest, weirdest person I've ever met, but I love you. But you've got it. Let's keep it. Let's just keep, keep building. And at this point in time, there are actually a number of people in Manenberg who didn't like what we were doing. They were pretty pissed off, if you forgive my language, and, and, and didn't like it because it was taking the spotlight off them. And, and in some cases, it was making them look bad because other people should have done things that they perhaps hadn't done earlier and, and so on. And Uncle Errol was like, man, God's given you this gift. This is your moment to help this community. Don't you dare stop because somebody's backstabbing you or, or writing something negative about you. Or, you know, there was a few people who were writing things on WhatsApp groups saying, man, this guy, he's, de he's, he's delivering tens of thousands of guns through the gangs. And I'm going, I'm going to get arrested for dealing guns here, but we're just delivering food parcels, you know, like, I mean, how, how dangerous can this be kind of thing, you know? I remember with Uncle Errol, um, he got COVID. Yeah. Um, I remember the day that I think you messaged me telling me he had COVID. Yeah. And um, I, I called him and I said, because I hadn't seen him in, in, in a while. It was a, about a month or two. Yeah. And I said to him, you know, I know I haven't seen you in a while. And the one thing that was our dream that we always talked about was he always wanted to help me document what was going on in the Cape Flats. Yeah. Talking to amazing people like Tariq. Yeah. Um, Incredible guy. Yeah. And uh, he, his main thing was he wanted to do, we, we planned to do like a five part documentary series of the Cape Flats. And uh, the idea was there and we were, we were planning it. Uh, we, we sat for hours planning it over multiple days. Um, and then I kind of didn't see him for a while. And you told me that he was, he was sick. And I, I called him. Uh, oh no, I sent him a voice note on WhatsApp and I said, uh, Uncle Errol, I hope I hope you're doing okay. I know it's been a little while. We haven't spoken. Uh, yeah, we haven't spoken in a while. Um, and I, I hear you're pretty sick, but I hope I'll I'll be able to see you again. Um, and the voice note sent, and I just never heard again. And then a few days later, I remember you guys. Uh, I think it was either you or Tariq messaged me saying that he had passed away. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, and. Um, he really cared about you, hey? Like you'd, you'd built relationship with him. And I think no, I that's, Uncle Errol. that's, but that's the key, right? And, and, and the reason that, that, um, you know, you asked me a question a little while ago, you said, you know, why do you keep doing this? And it's, it's not because it's a job and I don't get paid for it. It costs me a hell of a lot of money. Um, but I do what I do because I have relationship with these people. And if you have relationship with people, you, you have to turn up, you know, if your own son says, Hey dad, I, I, I broke, I fell and broke my arm. Can you help me? What are you going to do? You're going to help them. So, and that's because you've got relationship, but you build real relationship with the people in the community and they come to you with the same kinds of things. And you go, well, if I've got the means, I've got to do something and whatever I can do, I can't do nothing. You know, I, I may not be able to fix the problem. I may not be able to pay for every funeral or pay for every school bill or whatever the case might be, but I can turn up and I can have a cup of tea and I can sit and I can chat and I can, you know, shoot the breeze, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's one of the, you know, one of the key things, but, but back to Errol, you know, one of the beauties of, of what happened under lockdown 
was that, okay, I got this initial truce and that was kind of a bit of a miracle and it was dumb luck or whatever you want to call it. I think it was a miracle. I really think it was God's provision and, and it was his idea and it just kind of happened and it was beautiful. But then I met Errol and he said, let's keep this rolling and let's go a bit crazier. And the community started, um, for the most part, was super excited about what we were doing. But there were some naysayers going, ah, this will never work. These guys are clowns. You know, they're distributing guns or drugs through their food parcels, you know, just silly things. And, um, and Errol said, Andy, don't you dare stop. This is your time. This is, you know, God's, God's put you here for this moment to do this thing. Keep doing it. And if you don't, I'm coming after you. Basically, I'm like, okay, I'm scared of you. I'll do what you tell me to do kind of thing. And so we kept pushing forward. And what we then started doing was every morning we'd, um, he would call because his beauty was every single day. He'd start the day and he'd finish the day with a roll call with the gangs. He'd physically walk to each of the gangs, check in with the leaders, check in with a few of the, uh, a few of the soldiers, and just check the vibe, check what's going on so that he could get ahead of problems before they became big problems. And, and 90% of the time he managed to stave off things before they became problems. But, but instead of doing that then, he said, okay, cool, so let's just do the same thing, but let's get the gangs together at my house and we'll, we'll meet, we'll pray, we'll talk, we'll have a cup of tea, and then we'll, we'll work out where, we, where we're going to go distribute food together today. And so we started getting first two gangs and then three gangs and then four gangs and then five gangs and then six gangs every single day working side by side. And that, I mean, so, so the, 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 um, the, the, um, what do you call it? The, the, uh, I can't think of the word, the conductor, the orchestra conductor, the brilliance behind that, that was Uncle Errol. It really was, you know, he was the guy behind it who was going, Hey, go do this. Hey, go do that. And I'm like, okay, cool. We'll do that. And it just, it just worked. And, and so we got peace and we kept peace and it worked, you know, for quite some time. And then even after there was some fighting, and we got peace again, then, you know, we could get back to working together again. And the boys still, when I get into Manenberg, they'll still say, Pastor, when are we going to work? Because for, for a lot of these guys in the gangs, working, distributing food in the community was the first time they'd ever done what they would call work, you know? And I think man, was, man is made to work, you know? We're meant to work and, and, and go be industrious. Correct. And so that for these guys, it was, for a lot of these young guys, it was probably one of the best six month periods of the time of, of, of their life. And, you know, I mean, I'd love to tap into some of the stories of, of, of the guys because the guys that the, the heroes, I mean, I'm the taxi driver. I'm the guy who's got a cool bucky and has resources and can do stupid things because I'm a bit stupid or fearless or a combination of the two, whatever it is. But, but really the heroes in this situation are the Uncle Errols and, um, and the Prestons and the Leroy's and the Sunsies and the Tusriks and the Hoofs and the Jaunties and all of these, all of these senior gang guys who were prepared to put down their guns and become, as I said at the time, to become brothers in arms rather than brothers at arms. And, uh, and even after shooting and having, having a, a skirmish, go back to that again and get back to that piece, et cetera. That was a pretty cool thing. I think one of the, the moments that really struck <clears throat> me and I was like, this is something incredible that's happening was we were at Uncle Errol's house outside in the in the in the driveway and I looked around and um I saw mothers, I saw kids, I saw gang members, I saw basically a bit of every part of the community. Yeah. You know, in one room. Yeah. People that had killed each other's friends, killed each other's families, mothers that have you, you know Everyone basically in the community was there. Not everyone from the whole community, but I'm saying representatives of each kind of person from the community was there. And I just looked around and I was like, how is this happening, you know? How are all of these people in one room right now and 
everyone's just getting on with what they're supposed to be doing. That was when we were making the fake cook mix, right? Yeah, yeah, just packaging flour, packaging mushrooms, and, you know, it was just, it was an amazing thing to see. Now think about this, right? Can you imagine if the police raided us with 10,000 kilograms of mushrooms and 10,000 kilograms of white powder in the middle of a, Probably a gang, been a gang good central thing. in Manenberg? <laughs> and I mean, coming towards the end, I want to know, what are some of the scariest moments you've experienced? Because I know that a lot of the time you kind of laugh and joke about things, but you've been in some really hectic situations as well. Yeah. I mean, can you tell me one or two of those stories? Um, I'll tell you three quick ones. One is more funny than the other. Um, so the, 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 the first one is more of a funny one than not. And I, I was confronted with two gang members in Fasana Kral. This is like before I actually got involved with the gangs and, uh, I was going to take some food, uh, to three kids who had lost their mum that day. And there was, so it was now a, a child headed house and the eldest child was, I think 10, 10 or 12, a kid. And uh, I'm walking through the uh, the back alleys of, of the squatter camp at like midnight, 10, 11 o'clock at night, whatever I'm not sure, late, late on a Saturday night, don't know the time. And uh, there was two uh, Corsa gangsters and standing there, didn't want to let me pass, and one hand on a gun each and one hand down the front of their trousers each. And um, you, know, you know why the boys wear their hands down their trousers, by the way, hey? I have no idea. It's because um, it, nobody then knows if they have a gun down there or not. I didn't know that. So it's actually kind of a warning of, you know, I might have a gun here, so just look out. Because so when actually... I was younger and I put my hands down my trousers, it was usually because I was flicking my pup. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Some <laughs> things I didn't Very need to hear. Very inappropriate. So, um, but anyway, uh, so I, I go up to this guy and I'm like, yeah, they're not going to let me pass, so I need to break the tension. So I turn around and say, hey, dude, your zip's undone. And he looks down and he goes, no, it's not. So I reach down and pull his zip down. <laughs> and at that point, he had to either take his hand off his gun or, you know, or, or leave his, 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 um, his other gun his <laughs> out, <pistol>. out, <laughs> out for the world to see. <laughs> Thankfully he took his hand off his gun and pulled his zip up and, you know, smiled and so on. So I've had, I've had, you know, hundreds of encounters like that, that, that are dangerous, but, but have all thus far at least gone my way. But probably the two, the two craziest, most sort of, you know, hair raising moments as such. We had a, the first, the first gang funeral for, six months last year. Um, uh, it was, uh, it was the first shooting that happened that broke the ceasefire. Um, uh, I was preaching on the street. Um, we, uh, I think funerals are limited to 50, but we did it outdoors anyway. And so there was probably you know, a few hundred people out on the street, but spread right out. And the gang that had killed this young lad, he's an American. Um, in fact, he wasn't even actually in the gang when he was killed, but, but he had been an American and, uh, he'd managed to get out of the gang. But anyway, uh, I just started preaching, preaching the gospel, and uh, and um, probably twenty or so um, of the opposing gang that had gunned this boy down um, started shooting at the house that that I was standing out the front of, and so there were bullets kind of flying around, and 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 people started running and screaming, and you know one of the one of the really um, tragically funny but not funny things in these communities is when people start shooting. Um, uh, a lot of people in the community run towards the gunshots so they can see what happens, and that's why more people get killed than need to get killed. If you like, you know, it's kind of this, this interesting anyway. So we were, I, I had a, I had a, I had a microphone in my hand and I'm thinking, Hey, am I going to die here today? Am I, and, and, uh, you know, am I going to go hide, et cetera or not? And I thought, you know what, this is my territory. This is where we're meant to be. We're just going to keep punching on and so on. So that was kind of interesting. I, it was kind of scary more 
in retrospect than actually at the time. But, and I didn't actually think the shots were that close, but there was a number of bullets like here and here and here. Just whipping straight the, past you. In the wall uh, and, and in, the, in, the, in the, the, the roof. So that was, a, that was a fairly crazy moment. But I think probably the craziest was, um, and I won't say which peace process, but one peace process that, that happened uh, in relatively recent time um, with, uh, with, with two gangs. And, um, and uh, these guys had killed uh, a lot of each other. Uh, over the over the previous almost a year uh, of of constant fighting, and um and the day that we got peace, um the, yeah the tension was was absolutely insane and there were a lot of I I, I was taking um, the respective gang members from both gangs to the neutral territory to try and make peace, but we we're just going to talk about peace. And the thing is, I knew that they all had guns. They all, of course, knew each other had guns and so on and so forth. But that, I won't go into the detail just because it's not the right venue to do it. But that was a crazy moment. I actually sent a message home to, to my family saying, don't know if I'll be here tonight, but if I'm not, I love you guys. You know, And I, I actually thought I might die that day. But, um, but at the end of the day, you know, hey, you got to do what you got to do, right? Exactly. And um, just to end off, I want to ask you, how would you summarize the best lessons or best lesson you've learned throughout this time working in these communities? Um, yeah, I can't give you one. I can give you a few. Is that okay? <laughs> I'll do it, it quick though. So, so the first one, <laughs> the first one would be just turn up and just keep turning up, just keep coming. The second one, and this is one that Uncle Errol um, was one of his favorite sayings. It was, uh, well, he had two favorite sayings. One was, but by the grace of God, and the other was, change happens from within. So I can be a catalyst for that change, but I can't be that change because I don't, and that's not my community. It's my community by, by invitation, not by birth. And so, you know, getting the change to come from within. So that's, that's, a, that's a really important one. And I think then the other two would be to run into the fire or run into the gunfire. When, when, the, crazy, when the crazy stuff is happening, run towards it, don't run away from it, because that's a moment that you can actually do, you know, pretty miraculous things. And then the final one, which kind of taps into the second final one, is if you believe the impossible is possible, you might just sometimes prove yourself right. So, you know, if you, if you think that you, well, another way of putting it, if you think you can, you're right. If you think you can't, you're probably right as well. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Andy, thank you so much for coming down today. Pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. And that brings us to the end of the Wide Awake podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. It's been a little bit of a slow start to the year. I've had some technical issues, aka I'm a lazy mother huffer. I'm <laughs> trying to censor it there. But anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I know I did. And I will see you next week, hopefully.